This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Old City of Jerusalem at Asha Torah overlooking the Temple Mount. Here we are. This is our, our uh, final class right before the holiday of Purim. Purim is one of the funnest holidays of the year, but it's also one of the holiest holidays of the year. And you want to look out for like spontaneous combustion in the middle of some of the parties or the dancing and all the stuff going on where you just like go convulsively sobbing because of the connection between you and God. You see, historically, Jewish events were, were you know, based on on, um, I mean, really based on temple period times where, where there were specific services that the Kohanim were doing. You know, it's right outside this window, literally. You know, I mean, I can show you if you like to see because we got the temple mount right out here. So the, so the Kohanim, the priests, and the Levites and the concerts, you know, it was like this constant concert going on and, and it was like, it was just amazing what was going on out there. And, but it was all based around the holidays. So you had like the chauffeur of Rosh Hashanah and you had the, the sukkahs and the, and the lulavs and the, and the giant parties they were throwing in the temple during, during the pilgrimage festivals and all this. But every one of these holidays were holidays that are depicted in our Torah. They're all depicted in our Torah with very specific measurements of what you do on that holiday and what you don't do as well. Like Pesach has a lot of don't do's and it's got what you should do. And including like four cups of wine or telling over the story of the leaving of Egypt and all that stuff. There's do's, there's don't do's in every holiday. And these are patterns in time also. I mean, these are little literal pipes in time. Meaning as the zodiac shifts, the different holidays click in and then that energy comes down that holiday. Now all the do's and don't do's of that particular pipe are actually like facets of the pipe. So if you've ever seen like a splined interface in a mechanics where it's not just a pipe into a pipe like plumbing which is threaded but these are splined it's like in and out in and out and in and out so you can say like the ins are the are the positive commandments of a holiday like drink four cups of wine or whatever and the outs are things you should avoid on that holiday so that the alignment's perfect and then it links in and then the, you get the download of that holiday because every holiday is a download Sukkot is a download of joy Rosh Hashanah is the download of of being in a new world because God renews the world. Yom Kippur, is, the download is forgiveness, that you can actually factory reset yourself on every Yom Kippur. Hanukkah is the download of light over darkness. The Pesach is the download of freedom. Shavuos is the download of the Torah. And every holiday has its own download, and we get involved with that by keeping the laws of that holiday. That is the way you match up, because, you know, today we all have these easy USB cables, and obviously the iPhone cable is even easier, because it's just, you know, that little chunk of, of whatever that fits inside. But in the old days, when they first made cable interfaces, remember, like, sometimes the pins would move, and you, like, couldn't get it in, you had to go buy a new cable. So some of us think that we can, like, blow off certain aspects of the plug-in for the holiday. You know, like, we just think, like, oh, it's not that important, you know. The main thing is I ate gefilter fish, or the main thing is that I had matzo or whatever. No, you got to line it up, man. Meaning, you got to eat that kazayas matzah no less than nine minutes. <laughs> and it's, a, a kazayas matzah not a little bit of matzah. You can eat a kazayas matzah, a real kazayas matzah, comfortably in nine minutes, for sure. Now, of course, there's some other opinions, so we go for two, which means we chew and chew and chew. It's like, it's like you're like a, the old school typewriter, you're just like... 
until you've got like most of the matzah in your mouth. And it's not called eating until you swallow it. So you get, wait till your entire table has, to like, and you gotta hope no one cracks a joke because then it's like full, you know, like, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, no, it's a machine gun, machine gun matzah shooting across the room, you know, and, and the, anyway, but what happens is I look at my watch because there's several people in my family that want to get it under two minutes, which is some like extreme opinion that eating supposed to, you're supposed to eat a certain amount within two minutes. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I'm like, here we go. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing. My watch is dictating everything I'm saying. How did that happen? This is so amazing. I mean, do, do Apple watches offer that? Mine does apparently. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so. No jokes during this time. But then when, it, when I'm ready for the two-minute mark, I go, I go like this, you know, because I can't speak, obviously. And like this, and then everyone starts swallowing. Which is super dangerous. Super dangerous. <laughs> it's not like you get to pour wine in with it, you know. You're like... Anyway, but those are USB cable interfaces. They're not the simple ones we have, mini USBs today, that never bump into anything. In the old days, you could mess up the... the the wires in there. You want to make sure your interface properly. Today, if I can quote people from the inner city of the Bronx, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that. No one today can be bothered with such. I mean, can you be bothered with all these details? Yeah. She can be. Can you be bothered with all these details? Yeah. You guys are just trying to look good. Right? <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that. Nobody cares about that stuff anymore. Okay. No one cares about it. That's the stuff, you know, maybe if you're raised Hasidic, you know, and, you're, and your grandfather's watching you at the Pesach table, <laughs> you know, you're like, maybe you'll do a couple lines. I don't know how far you're going to go with that. But people generally just don't care about that stuff anymore. So what we do care about, though, in our generation, what we care about is our own story, our own little narrative about our lives that is all you care about this this is the generation of your narrative it's your own little story that you're so into and it's so important to you and it's got like it's got you completely engaged like think about it your own personal story your own narrative that you're carrying out as you sit there right now in your chair and you're like where's this rabbi going with this right now because that was supposed to be about matzah or maybe the holidays or maybe this is a Purim class but no, what's really going on is you're right now in the middle of your story. Somehow I'm inside your story because I'm here right now speaking, but I'm like, I'm like a little blip compared to your story. And you're inside your story, and your story is real serious. And your story is so serious that there's probably, probably just statistically several of you who pay someone upwards of $200 just to hear it once a week. <laughs> Thank you, Aviva. So... <laughs> You are way inside your story, and it doesn't take someone to be a genius in social media to realize that people are deeply inside their stories. And you need a two, a two seats, no problem. Uh, can you come uh, sit up here, bro? There you go, it's table for two right there. Mosquito and my sax from the Eula Band, who's now at Orita. And I'm the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sax player. Yeah. Okay. You try. Once in a while. Get him for third. Month. 
Yeah, you should come my third meal. We have a live band every uh, Motsa Shabbos for Havdola. Anytime? It's the Havdola concert. Anytime? Okay. Can you come? I'm calling right, you now. I'm right next door. <laughs> yeah, we're in Nachlo. Yeah, you got to get your sacks there before Shabbos. I, I will try to make it. But the truth is, we take out Shabbos so late <laughs> that yeah. you could just get there. I can walk in. Or drive it. We take out Shabbos late. Okay. Now, um, you don't have to be a, you don't have to be a maven in social media to know that everyone's inside their own story. And this particular holiday is really interesting because it just doesn't it doesn't come with with you know it just doesn't come. First of all, it's not written in the Torah. There's no. This is not one of the holidays of the Torah. It's not a. It, this is a rabbinic holiday. Now, it does come from the book of Esther, which is part of the Torah, meaning that's, that's within the writings of the Torah. But this is not like all those other holidays with all those very strict prescriptions. And in fact, very interestingly, that it can't be a day that's holy. You're not allowed to do Purim on a holy day. It's got to be a weekday. It's got to be your life. It's got to be your stuff. It's got to be you're able to turn on and off switch, drive around, and like you know, you're not supposed to work on Purim, but it's got to be a day you could have worked. It's got to be a day that's that's mundane. In fact, we have an issue because Purim sometimes lands on Shabbat in Israel, and when it lands on Shabbat, we move the holiday from Shabbat. We move it from Shabbat, and so we read Megillah on. Oh, gosh. When do we read Megillah? Yeah, what do we do on Friday? Friday we Friday do... Night. Friday we do some of the mitzvahs. Shabbos day, we say al because it's that's the day. Um, Sunday... I'm talking about years that it lands on Shabbos. And then Sunday... Sunday's Megillah? Yeah, Sunday's Megillah. And, and the, the, major, the major drunken party is on Sunday. And so we sp- it's called Purim Meshulash, the triple Purim, where we spread out all the mitzvahs of Purim over three days. But the main part where you're supposed to get your download, now listen carefully. Remember I spoke about all the different downloads of each holiday? Guess what? There's two holidays in the Jewish calendar, and we're going to focus on one, two holidays in the Jewish calendar that you only get your download when you're unconscious. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. It's a weird thing, but we have two holidays where the download of the holiday comes in when you're unconscious. Now, when's the first time the word Haman shows up in the Torah? Haman. So it should be inside the Megillah. But it actually, I'm asking you a different question. When's the first time the letters Hey, Mem, and Nun, Haman, show up in the Torah? Sam? God ate in Hamin Ha'etz. Stay in English. In the Garden of Eden when Eve is being tempted by the Nachash, the snake. Wow. Yeah. Not when she's being tempted. After they ate from the fruit, God sees that they realize they're naked. And he sees them run and hide as if you can hide from God. You know, which we all tend to, in our narrative of our story, we tend to be hiding from God and, and full of shame all the time. And uh, anyway, God says to them, Hamina ate. Did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from. Well, what was that tree? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning the tree of the knowledge of distinction. Distinction. Good and evil is like the ultimate distinction, but like it's all distinction because before they ate from that fruit, they saw things distinct from one another, but they also saw the letters of God's name inside of everything. Everything was glowing with the oneness of God. 
before they ate from that fruit. Once they ate from that fruit, tree is not rock, rock is not brook, brook is not mountain. And everything got super distinguished. Everything went opaque, meaning things were translucent, which is why we look at our fingernails in the Havdalah candle. Everything went from translucent to opaque. And then they realized, oh my gosh, we're naked, because they had never even seen themselves, really. They had never seen much, really. And it's very interesting that it says when they ate from the fruit, their eyes were opened. Did any of you think of Adam and Eve in the garden going like, where are you? You know, like, it wouldn't mean their eyes were open. Their eyes weren't open before that. What it means is their eyes were opened to the veil of physicality. Their eyes were opened to the veil of physicality. And hence begins now history of humanity. Humanity living inside. No problem. Of humanity living inside. Living inside their narrative. That begins humanity living inside their narrative, which all boils down to distinctions like should I, shouldn't I, you know, and all these different choices, macro choices, micro choices, but you're like constantly like navigating, you're like GPSing your way through reality all the time. And that is the Megillah. That's the Megillah. Because the Megillah is just a story. We're just going to read a story. And then we're going to be asked after we read the story to imbibe the amount of alcohol it takes you to stop relying on the physical distinctions of your external environment for your basis of reality. See, right now, you've been using the physical environment around you as your basis for reality. That's your, I mean, what does keep you stable? And can you imagine if you walked out your house this morning, wherever you're staying this, this on your, wherever you are, wherever you stayed last night, imagine you walked out of the door and you just immediately like, see you're in another kind of environment. You hear <laughs> screaming. You look to your right and there's some like push cart guy in a Cairo Egyptian shook shooting by and you just like, whoa, and you jump back into your apartment. And when you jump back in your apartment, you fall backwards. And the next thing you know, you're on this slide. Sliding deeper, faster and deeper and faster in this spiraling slide. Till it's like warm from the Earth's magma. And then it's cooling. And then all of a sudden, you go flying out. And you're in a rice paddy in Thailand. In a monsoon rain. Now, would you say you've gone insane? I would freak out. (laughs) Would you say you've gone insane? What were you therefore thinking was causing your sanity? Meaning, what have you been been using for the basis for sanity in your life? What do you use? Well, I think on a very basic level, what we use for our basis for sanity is the world appears the way it should. That the world appears the way it should. (laughs) And so much of your basis for sanity is not only your world should appear the way it should, but you should appear the way you should, which is called the self-image. Our self-image, the way we see ourselves, is important for our sanity. And this is the freaky thing about life in general, is that no one actually knows who they are. That's the funny thing, is that if I asked this whole group of people, I'm sure very few of you would be willing to get up here and say who you are, knowing that if you say anything that you're not by accident, 
Meaning it might have been just self-image. What's the word image stand for? It's short for imagine, like the imaginary self that you've created to navigate with. Or you could use the word from Google images, like self-image is just a picture you took of yourself. But when did you shoot that snapshot? I doubt it was at your best angle. I'm sure you saw, you you shot the self-image snapshot in your life was probably at a real, real difficult moment. And I can prove it to you because you all know intuitively that if you had 500 good days, but on day 301, something crazy happened on day 301, which day do you remember of those 500 days? 301's the day. 301 was the defining moment when you found out you're dumb, ugly, you know, you know, small, incapable, whatever it was. That was probably day three. If 301 was that day, that was the defining moment. And hence the self-image has to be developed somehow around it. But that's like, that's like developing a scab around a wound. You understand that developing one's self-image around such a thing is like developing a scab around a wound. Now, I've seen some pretty foxy scabs. And I've seen some very handsome scabs before. And I've seen some very smart scabs and various, but it's really all around a wound. So our two basis for sanity are the physical world should be the way it looks and our own personal story, our own narrative that we are like navigating with a white-knuckled ride. I mean, you have no idea. You're, you're holding muscles right now. Right now, you think you're not using your muscles? You're using all your muscles right now. You're even holding your face in place. I mean, you just can't stop using your, using your muscles. I'll give you an example right now. Who should I use this time? <laughs> Did I ever use you for this? No. Uh, can I use you for this? Mind filming? Hold steady. So we'll just see. Yeah, you did good. No, you did good once. Okay, here we go. We're, we're, he's obviously doesn't need any muscle. He's just sitting, right? The man's just sitting here. I'm sorry if you guys can't see his arm. You can stand up if you want. But the, uh, yeah, you stand up. Oh, come up here. Even better. You can sit in the center of you. She's, of course, the first one to stand. <laughs> no one stood. Yeah, well, good for you. Okay, so all I'm going to do is ask him, and he already knows what I'm going to do because he saw me do this the other day, so he should be able to pull this off. So all I'm going to do, all I'm going to do, all I'm going to do is raise his arm up, and I'm going to let it go. Okay, that's all I'm going to do. Who raised his arm up, me or him? Him. All I'm going to do. Who raised his arm up? He did. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to raise his arm up and let it go. You're going to do nothing. You can sit. Let's hear it for my lovely assistant. Beautiful job. Beautiful job. It reminds me in, in when we're doing yoga, you know, when we're doing yoga, so you get these, you get these novel, these new people in yoga who are like, they don't, um, <laughs> they're using all kinds of muscles. Like when, when you've done yoga for a while, you, you use the muscles you're using. Don't use muscles you're not using. So you you realize now you use muscles mm. without even, and even when I asked you to let it go, you can't, you didn't. I could, by the way, if we sat for 10 minutes, I would get you there. I'd get you to finally make a shift in your brain that would allow your arms to rest. But we're all doing it. And it takes away our energy. 
And in, in yoga, the, we have this joke is that uh, when one of the people, you know, let's say we're doing a tree, for example. So we're, so we're in this position, yeah. So we're in the tree position. And then what will happen is if you have a new guy, he's obviously, he's not like doing that. He's against the wall or something. He's like, he's like against the wall or something. And he's squishing his face into Raisin Man. And he's the Raisin Man. And, and, he's, and what happens is the yoga instructor, hey, le- welcome. Um, can I separate you? I'm sorry. I normally, I try to put everyone together, but there's two seats, one there and one there. Oh, wait, yeah, just one. There you go, two seats available right there. Table for two. Anyway, this guy's the raisin man in the middle of this yogic position when the instructor says... When the, dude. <laughs> this has happened never in the history of this class. <laughs> it's happened twice. <laughs> By the way, I love having you in the front row. You're like, keeping me good. Yeah. So... so so the, you know what the instructor says? He says, you won't be needing your face for this particular position. <laughs> At which point the whole yoga class laughs. And the guy relaxes his face because there's almost no yogic positions that require your face. Except what's called, and it only happens accidentally, a face plan. Okay? But otherwise, you don't need your face for these things. The one thing that you take so seriously is your narrative. You're inside a story. And this particular holiday, it doesn't come with all these do's and don'ts. In fact, we make sure it doesn't hit Shabbos because Shabbos is don'ts. Shabbos is built out of don'ts. Thank God. Meaning, because Shabbos is about intimacy and every intimate relationship comes with lots of don'ts. Lots of don'ts. Because something intimate is going to come with tons of don'ts and Baruch Hashem. We want it just like that. Just like that. Anything intimate should have lots of don'ts. This is why someone who works in the store in the storefront retail of a giant company, let's say like Apple, they don't have a lot of don'ts. But when you get up to the executive level of Apple, like you're you're like, you know, where women have to like they have to go to Borough Park just to buy an outfit for their work because they don't sell clothing for executive women in Manhattan. You know, so they have to like they got to go to the Hasidic community just to buy an outfit, and meanwhile the ladies, lady's name's like Dorothy Smith. You know, and but she's got massive compliance laws of what not to do, like massive rules of compliance. Because the higher up you get, the more rules of compliance. Because she's in, she's intimate with information in that company that 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 very few people are privy to, and it comes with a certain level of of, of don'ts and levels of indignity. And if you're ever wondering why Jewish women dress the way they do, it's because we were privy to Mount Sinai. I mean, we got to see the nakedness of God. And seeing the nakedness of God is like, that's usually not so available to the world. Like, everyone else throughout history, including us since Sinai, we have to work through nature. Like, God works through nature. And so you always have this garment on. There's always this, like, thick robe that the king wears. And so, when you're always dealing with God through a thick garment, so, okay, it comes with like seven laws, seven laws of keep the seven, go to heaven. You know, like the seven laws that Gentiles have to keep. But the Jews have not just 613 laws. We don't have 613 laws. We have 613 hyperlinks. 
and those hyperlinks, when you click on them, take you to take you to like fifty five thousand laws that the Rambam lists, and there's many more than that, but there's 55,000 laws, because when you have that level of intimacy that we got at Sinai, you're an executive. You're now automatically an executive in all your actions, in your clothing, in your, in, in, in your interactions. You're now an executive. Now, the rough part, obviously, if you're just growing up like a teenager and, you know, raised in an observant home, you know, you're like, what kind of executive am I? I wasn't at Sinai. Like, how'd I inherit this thing? Like, how'd I wind up with all these rules? You know, I wasn't at Sinai. And the answer is you were at Sinai. It's just that you're, you may be a little numb right now. But there are ways of unnumbing yourself. One of those ways of unnumbing yourself till you start to realize how intimate you really are as a Jewish man or woman, one of the most important ways of doing that is to um, is to officially stop practicing um, stop practicing exile Judaism because that that period ended for us two hundred and fifty years ago. Kabbalists from all over the world realized that it's over. Everything's going to be here from now on. It's a different kind of Judaism in the land of Israel, and and so these Kabbalists like these Kabbalists sent their students. The Baal Shem Tov sent his students. The Vilna Gon sent his students. From, from Iraq, the Ben Ishchai sent his students. 250 years ago, they started this whole movement. And others in Yemen, they, they all started this. Because they realized spiritually that it's over. Exile Judaism has ended. And it's time for the Jewish people to come back to their, to their true organic roots. Because our plants only grow well in this soil. And the Jewish holidays only make sense here. I mean, think about Passover outside of Israel. Passover outside of Israel is like, okay, the first days are holidays. Those are great. But then after that, you're just like eating crackers and trying to figure out why. (laughs) For a week straight. Purim, the holiday of Purim, is just a story. It's a narrative. It's a narrative where, where you get to see a real great spotlight on the Gentile mindset of Ahasuerus and the Gentile mindset of the evils, evil people, the Amalekites, Amalekites like Haman and stuff. But, but you get like an amazing spotlight on them. You also get this amazing spotlight of Jews asleep. Because sleeping Jews is how this whole thing happened. The whole Purim story happened because the Jews fell asleep. And that's how Haman rose to power, only because the Jews fell asleep. Once the Jews fell asleep, they lost their protection. And Haman rises to power. And then this whole crazy narrative starts taking place. Sleeping Jews do really well with stories. Sleeping Jews don't do so well with Jewish holidays. Check it out. Check it out. Go check it out. Check out Sleeping Jews. They know it's Rosh Hashanah. Sleeping Jews know it's Passover. Sleeping Jews know it's, you know, they know it's whatever holiday it is. They know it is, and they just can't be bothered with, like, its details. How 
Well, I explained that earlier, so not right now, but they, they, they know, you understand, they're just, they're just sleeping. They're in the exiles. Just like the Jewish people were in a 70-year <laughs> exile and finally fell asleep. They fell asleep in that 70th year. In the 70th year, they went to, they went to Ahasuerus' party, a party that they didn't belong at. You see, literally, when you read the story, you'll see the Jews are going to go to this party, and right after they go to the party that, they sh- that you'd have to be asleep to go to. I mean, this was a party only sleepers could go to. You know Mordechai the Jew? Mordechai, he, he was pleading with them. There's a, it says that he was pleading with the people at the doorway to the party not to go in. It reminds me, my father was the oldest graduate of UCLA, and when he would go to the cafeteria to go buy some food, he would see this, uh, he would see, uh, he was eating kosher, so he wasn't necessarily going in there for the burger, but he might have been going in there for the banana or whatever. But there was a rabbi, Kunin, um, I forget his, Mendy maybe, I forget his name, but he would be standing outside the cafeteria at UCLA, a Chabad rabbi, with a bag filled with sandwiches, and he'd say, are you Jewish? <laughs> and they, if they said yes, I mean, people learned after a while, just say no, you know. But, the, um, but when he would say, are you Jewish, he would say, please don't eat that food. It's not kosher. Here's a sandwich. <laughs> so the story of Achashverosh, the story of Achashverosh is, is, um, is, it reminds me of, of the, this kid, this kid Mendy Kunin with his bag of sandwiches. Don't go to the party, man. Don't go in that place. Now, I've just mentioned a lot of things altogether, a lot of things. I'm, I could leave it for you that the coin's just going to drop on everything I've mentioned so far. What I'm really trying to set you up for is to have the ultimate Purim. And, and, and for those of you who felt like I wasn't very nice to the Jews in exile and stuff like that, Purim's different. Purim's supposed to be mundane as possible. It has to be in a mundane setting has to be, so doing Purim in some other city might be even, maybe it's even better, I don't know. But the, or some other country, I don't know. But but Purim is just a narrative. It's a narrative plus alcohol. And, (laughs) And. Or drunk with laughter. Yes. Now. Now, I want you all to envision the following little story. And I want you to envision it like a fantasy, as if you're the character of the story. And you live in the forest, outside of a village, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where the kingdom is, where the capital is, where the castle is, and the king lives. Hundreds of years ago, and your job is to cut wood, and you, you have a little shack you sleep in, and people come and buy your... <laughs> Buy your cut wood. Aviva, you're, you're, you're laughing without jokes. Aviva, you need just a deep breath. Good. Two more. Two more. Deep breaths, Aviva. <laughs> just breathe. Lots of breathing. Don't stop. Don't stop. Two. So what happens is one day you're chopping wood in the morning. And up drives the most beautiful chariot you've ever seen in your life. Like you've just never seen anything like this because you're living way out there in the sticks. 
So the most you've ever seen drawn by a horse was just a flat bedded wagon. But it's just a gorgeous chariot. And out jumped these guys. I mean, I'm sure there's a proper name for them, you know, wearing royal kind of fluffy things and stuff. Uh, what would be a name of such a messenger? I don't know. But out they come, and they open up a scroll, and they say, is your name so-and-so? And you're like, it is. And they're like, you've won a lottery in our kingdom, and the king has invited you to the royal palace. Would you like to come? And, and you're like, sure. Yeah, of course. Like, I won the lottery. I'm going to the kingdom. Like, the palace, I've never, I've only heard about it since I was a little kid. I never, wasn't like we could ever travel that far. And so, so they said, well, okay, go put on some nice clothes and jump in. And you're like, you're pointing to your clothes. You're kind of like, this is it. You know, like, this is what I got. You know, and they're like, well, then get in. So you get inside and it's just plush. It is plush. You're in like the limo of carriages. And, and you're just, Heading out, you're looking out the window, you see your shack disappearing in the distance. It's got six horses, so you're just flying. And then you see your village that you grew up in, and you're moving. And Anyway, one morning you wake up during this journey, and it's just smoother sailing. You look out the window, and you see there's cobblestones, first time ever. It's like actually even even roads. And you ask the guys, like, what is this? And they're like, well, those are cobblestone. Well, who put those in there? I mean, that's a lot of work. Like, well, we're getting closer to the kingdom. So this particular city, these cobblestones were commissioned by the king. And now you're already seeing, like, architecture and infrastructure. And you're like, whoa. And they're like, yeah, you think this is interesting. Wait to see what you're going to see two days from now when we finally get to the kingdom, to the actual capital. Anyway, you finally get to the capital. It's just smooth sailing. You're like almost on precious stones there. It is smooth. You look out the window, you're seeing like hedges shaped, shaped like sea creatures. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's like everything's commissioned by the king. And there you see up on the top of the mountain is the most gorgeous castle you've ever seen. And you get to climbing up that mountain and you get to the top of the mountain and there's a big moat and a drawbridge comes down. You get across the drawbridge, the, the wagon stops, you get out of the wagon and there's, they set up foot, you know, steps for you to come out and there you see the tallest people you've ever seen in your life because in the kingdom the people who guard the king who are by the you know outside the kingdom are like these seven footers you know that that they're recruited as the guards of the king you're just like what and and then they take you to your quarters which is your quarters this huge area and immediately as soon as you're standing there people are coming and measuring your sleeve lengths and measuring your waist and they're like they're like you know, they're setting you up, and you, know, and you have another person coming in just to look at the colors of your eyes, your skin, your hair, like, make sure it's just going to be, like, exactly perfect for you. And and then they're, you know, of course, they're making about ten of these outfits. Each one's going to be different, and they're all going to be for you. Then you go to the bath, and there you're being bathed by five different people who are <laughs> bathing you. You know, someone's doing your hair. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you know, another one's doing your, massaging your hands and stuff. Like, you're, you're just like, you think you died and gone to heaven. Stick with it. Stick with it. Finally, after you sleep for a few hours, they wake you up and you're given your first royal garment. And they say, it's time to meet the king. The king has been waiting and waiting for you. Because this has all been dealt with weeks ago. And like, we, you're finally here. This is it. And they start taking you chamber by chamber by chamber. Now, you thought of things you wanted to say to the king. You were things you had in mind, but you're, like, starting to forget them. And you're, meaning, because you're just freaking. And then you finally get to the throne room. 
And for the first time in the history of the kingdom, the king actually stood up for you and starts walking towards you and gets to you and embraces you. And the king says, this has been a dream of mine forever to do this. And I want you to know you're in the kingdom, man. You're with us. You eat with the royal family. You travel with the royal family. You wear the royal family's clothes. That area of the kingdom where you're, been, where you're staying is yours. But I'll never keep you here by force. You can choose at any time to leave this place. You have absolute free will to leave the kingdom. But if you'd stay, we would be very honored for you to stay. You will not be held here by force. And then you take leave from the king. Now imagine the person walking you back to your quarters saying to you, what was it like being held by the king? I don't think your answer would have been, well, the king was wearing about five layers. You know, kings have like a lot of stuff. You know, all the way to the like shawl, that's this puffy shawl they're wearing. I don't think you would say, well, the king was wearing like five layers. Does, does any of us get a hug and, and say like, well, the person was wearing a suit. I don't think we do that. This world, our physical world, is, is actually the clothing of the king. You're living inside the garments of the king. You've never been outside the kingdom. You've been hugged since you were born. You're being hugged now. What do you think? The clothing you're wearing that's hugging you? I mean, your clothing's hugging your skin. Some of you are tighter than others. But your clothing's hugging your skin right now. Your clothing's hugging you. And that's just the king inside the garments. That's God. You've been given free will. You can hang around the kingdom and just be totally connected. But if you choose to go and just... Meaning, get, meaning in your mind, if you choose to just go be busy with other things that we love to go be busy with, if you want to just go be out there and busy with stuff and have your mind elsewhere, the king will never stop you. Because the king's there too. The king's in your best times, he's in your worst times. The king allows you to want to do the wrong things, allows you to do the wrong things and even arranges it in all of its detail for you to do that. You're inside your narrative of your story. On the other side of this narrative is this hidden king, is this, this king is in the garments of all reality. Most Jewish holidays, you have to be from a certain generation or at least a certain level of Torah knowledge to really hook up to that holiday. We're not living in that generation right now. We're just not in that generation. One thing everyone knows is a story. And so we read this story. And this story is a story of innuendos, coincidences, all kinds of things like that. Personalities of mega ego 
maniac like King Ahasuerus is a, is a full-on hardcore narcissist, 2019 millennial. And then there's this evil side, which is Haman, which just wants to destroy good from the world. He wants to kill it. He wants to get rid of good from the world. Can we wipe out that scourge called the conscience? Sorry to quote Hitler. But can we wipe out conscience? Wipe the Jews off the earth. And hence the genocide in the Purim story. And then the sleeping Jews. And them waking up because of the narrative that took place for them in Shushan and in the Persian Empire at that time. Purim has never been more relevant than our generation, where we're all in our stories and we're addicted to our stories. We're totally hooked to our stories. We're stuck in our stories. And then you add the amount of alcohol on Purim that's necessary for the physical world to go a little sideways. And your self-image suddenly, self-image and your inhibitions, close it, please. Your self-image and all your inhibitions, all those inhibitions, what are inhibitions? Inhibitions are what I could have expressed in my life would have been this, but I'm going to inhibit that. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about the way people think of losing their inhibitions on wine. By the way, girls, do be careful because there are going to be a lot of drunk men around. So, you know, keep your wits about you. You know, you can go to a Mishte Nashim if you want, if you want to drink alcohol, but be careful out there. But you, when I say inhibitions, I'm talking about you inhibiting who you really would be in this world. Till where the physical basis for sanity is no longer working for you because of the alcohol input. And then, but then your own narrative, your own story of all those coincidences happening in your life, suddenly you realize that God was inside them. The whole story of your life was the garments of the king. I know. The whole story, till you realize that it was all, your whole story was the garments of the king. You're in your own Purim story. And it was all inside the garments of the king. And your whole job is just like the Jews of 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 Persia is to wake up from your narrative and to realize the intimacy of the hug, the intimacy of the hug that you're getting from the king and to use your free will to choose to be with the king and not always kind of somewhere else, but like literally with the king, an intimate relationship with the king. And this is why they say that in the end of days, all the other Jewish holidays are going to be gone. Our sages say, all the other Jewish holidays, gone. The only holiday we'll have will be Purim. They say all the other books of the Torah will no, no longer be used. The only books we will use in the future will be the Megillah, the story, the narrative. We are living in a generation of everyone totally stuck inside a narrative. A radical, narcissistic world of our own story and how we're going to somehow maintain our narrative in this world. We are reaching the period of the end of days where Purim has become the relevant holiday compared to any other holiday. Purim 
is it. So I bless us all to have a real Purim all the way in and to the point you should go deep into Purim such that you go spontaneously sobbing at some point when you feel that connection. It's not a sad sobbing. It's a, it's a, it's a full connection where you just are sobbing from the convulsive experience of God that he's been in your story this whole time and it's time to wake up from this deep, deep sleep. Amen. Amen. From Sameh. Uh, please join my club, everybody. Uh, it's yomtovmediaclub.com. Please uh, go online if you enjoy these classes. Created that club for you to help this get out there too, for other people to enjoy. Shalom, shalom. From Sameh. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.